amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Blog Talk Radio. Well, hello. Welcome. I'm Jason. It's been quite a while, I think. I have not done a podcast in a couple of years. Took a little break. What was I on? Pagans Tonight. Things changed on Pagans Tonight. I, I don't know what happened with Pagans Tonight, so now I'm here. And I'm glad you are here, too. So it's good to be back. Kind of changed the name of the show. Uh, you know, I'm more than just the Raise the Horns guy now. I have five freaking books that have been published. So I feel like I'm just more than a blogger at this point, right? Is that fair? So I've got that going on, and so I wanted to change it. And I also am living in a time of quarantine. You know, we restarted the show during stay-at-home orders and all that shit. And I just find that I'm drinking a lot more because what else am I going to do, right? So I decided we would change the name of the show to Witches, Whiskey, and Wit, and I promise you, I promise you, every week we do the show, there will be one of those three things on hand. Either there will be a witch as a guest, there will always be whiskey, and maybe, periodically, I will be witty. We shall see. Who knows? (laughs) I'm hoping that I'll be witty. Tonight's guest is super witty, super charming, beautiful. He also looks like Gerald Gardner in the right circumstances. Uh, his name is Glenn Raven. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Jason. How are you doing this evening? I'm great. How are you, my brother? I am doing really well. You know, for those who do not know uh, Glenn, he is probably my biggest bromance in all of Witchdom. I mean, I have many bromances. There's Storm Fairy Wolf. There's Devin Hunter. There's Matt Oren. But Glenn was first. And will always be first in my heart. <laughs> it's true. You never get over true. It's true. You never do. You never do. So one of the things that we have to start with, we have to talk about Gwyn's new book, The Magic of Food, which just came out in January at Llewellyn. But we also have to talk about how bad he is making me look at my own house. See, Gwyn is a food pornographer. And every day, every couple of days at least, on social media, he posts pictures of the dinner that he's making. And they often contain things such as reduction. I don't know what the hell that is. But I know that my wife is very excited about it. It's like, oh, my God, did you see this? Braid's lamb shank, Jason. You know, I don't even allow lamb into my house close to goats, which is too close to family. So I have to say, Gwen, you're making me look bad uh, with Ari. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, Jason. The next time I post a picture, it'll be of uh, fish sticks and french fries or something. So it's it's less glamorous. How about that? That would be helpful. That would be helpful. 
So when did, did your love of food and cooking start? Because it really is a love and a passion of yours, right? I mean, it really, I mean, you can tell, like, when you talk about it, you just love it. I do. I really do. And you know what? I, I can trace back to the moment when I fell in love with food. When I was about seven years old, my parents took me to Spain. We went on a family vacation. I grew up in England. And going to Spain is a little bit like going to Mexico if you live in California or going to Hawaii. Um, it's, uh, you know, a three-hour plane ride, and, and it's where a lot of tourists go. It's beautiful. And I remember we were at this hotel. A hotel was called the Hotel Rumba, and it was on the Costa del Sol in Benidorm, which couldn't be like that was the, the ultimate touristy spot back then. And um, I remember our second day there for uh, our dinner, we had a seafood paella. And it came, the, the fish came right out of the ocean. The mussels were fresh. Uh, the saffron in the rice was this pungent yellow. And I had never seen or tasted food like this in my, uh, in my young life at that point. And it, it marked a, a moment where I imagined that food could taste amazing. Because up until that point, um, I had subsisted on a lot of, you know, boiled things because that's about all my mum could cook. And it was pretty much well, what the cuisine was of England at the time. Right. So yeah. I just remember these, these pungent spices and these amazing aromas and, and herbs and and. It was served in this giant pan. It was absolutely amazing. And I went back and just had more and more and more. And so that was probably the, the, the first time that I can really remember falling in love with food. And then where I grew up in, in London was a real mixing pot. So there were people from Cyprus and Turkey. There were people from... Uh, India and Pakistan. There were uh, folks from Afghanistan. There were uh, many, many people from the, the West Indies and the Caribbean. Um, and so there was this amazing um, uh, plethora of food. And I was very fortunate. I was pretty social even back then as a young kid. And so I might go over to one friend's house and his parents would be serving jerk chicken, you know, traditional kind of Jamaican dish. And, and uh, then I go to another friend's house and we'd be having uh, shawarma or something that was more, um, you know, uh, uh, Turkish or Middle Eastern. And then I'd have goat at an Afghani's friend's house. So, you know, I grew up with these weird flavors mixed in with things like fish and chips and, uh, you know, steak and kidney pudding and, you know, things like that boiled to an inch with their life, you know. <laughs> I, you know, I just, as soon as I hear, ooh, filter organ, you know, like, I'm no longer hungry. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love all that stuff. I love, like, hearts and brains and uh, oh. livers and kidneys. Oh, my God, they're the, you know, if you cook them right, they're the best, the best bits. They're so delicious. Oh, oh my God. Thank God I've got this whiskey here. Thank the gods. Let's have a have a long pull of that. Mm. Mm, I'll I join just, you in that. Yes. I will say, sometimes I fought my father because he indulged my very picky palate. 
you know, sometimes I wish he would have just said, eat this. The only few times he ever said, eat this, were things like, I'm serving you rabbit so you can cry while you eat dinner, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, Jason, we've had a few meals together over the years, and I hope never to make you cry, unless it's tears of joy. But I don't ever want to put yeah. anything in front of you and say, eat this and cry while you do it. <laughs> yeah. I think I did cry when I went to House of Prime Rib. That was really good. I mean, that's it's just a meal I still talk about. Who knew cream spinach would be something that is edible? So good, right? Really amazing. Yeah. 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 When did you realize that not only do you like food, that you like cooking food? And not just, I'm going to cook this for 30 minutes and then be done, but I'm going to spend six hours on and off throughout a day making this fantastic meal. You, you know, there's a there's a bit of an evolution with that. So when I was uh, in my late teens, um, you know, I, I moved out of my home and I worked in a few restaurants like a lot of people do at that age. So I cooked because I had to because that was what my job was, right? So I worked in different kitchens and then into my 20s, I worked in the beer and wine industry, so I was around a lot of bars and, and restaurants and had a chance to get behind the, uh, either the bar and serve or get into the kitchen and cook with the line cooks, and that was my favorite thing. There was an old pub that I used to go to all the time, and um, they were frequently in the weeds, as cooks often say, and uh, they knew I knew how to cook a thing or two, and so I'd end up in the kitchen uh, cooking uh, along with the uh, with the chef in the kitchen, so it was you know just tremendous fun, and there's a there's a speed and a and a dance. It's almost like ballet when you're in a tight, cramped, hot, dangerous kitchen uh, with other cooks. It's 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 a magic all of its own. It really is. And then um, you know during I I was married uh, to a person for many years and. Uh, uh, she did most of the cooking in the home, and food became sort of sustenance. There wasn't anything really exciting about it. And some of that was because we were young parents with uh, a limited budget and not a lot of skill, and I was working all the hours that I could, so I just uh, we just kind of ate very humdrum food. And then uh, when that marriage uh, ended, uh, I found myself living on my own again and rediscovered cooking because for the first time in... I don't know, 12 or 13 years, I could cook what I wanted, eat what I wanted. And I just started to um, pull on some of these recipes that I had learned over the years, either when I was cooking or um, uh, just growing up and started to really get back into food. And then, um, you know, there was a little bit more money in my life. And so I was able to go out to better and better restaurants and buy cookbooks and spend time pouring over them. Um, I I am constantly looking at cookbooks and, and recipes from a variety of sources. Uh, I literally get up every morning, and the first thing I do is think about what I'm going to cook for dinner, and I start pouring through recipes. Um, so it's really it's just a labor of love. I'm, I'm pretty much fanatical about it. Like I pour over cookbooks, like which is pour over – uh, grimoires, you know, grimoires. I just absolutely love diving into different techniques and different cultures and different cooks, looking at the same food and how it's treated in different 
um, in the hands of different chefs and and um, and doing that myself. So yeah, I just I just love being in the kitchen, all kitchens. I just love being in the kitchen. Do you ever feel do you ever feel pressured by your friends like Gwen, come over and make us a meal, or we want to go to your house and have food? <laughs> do, you, do you ever like want to turn that off? No, <laughs> I don't. Uh, I went out to a really dear friend of mine, uh, I, a, a couple. They just had a baby. Uh, they wanted uh, Phoenix and I to come over. Phoenix is my wife. Uh, we were going to go over for dinner. And um, as these things happened, my dear friend wanted to cook me dinner. Um, she knows how important food is to me, and she's a great cook herself. And uh, I got there, and, and the baby was... Uh, as babies are wont to do, a little bit fussy, and she needed to spend more time with the baby. And she sort of looked over me with a forlorn look on her face and said, would you cook dinner? And I was like, sure. And she was like, I feel terrible. I invited you over to dinner, and now you have to cook for, you know, five people. And it was like, I love it. So, no, I don't mind cooking at all. Uh, it's, it's just a great uh, joy of mine. And really, Jason... I think for me what it comes down to, and I know this sounds very twee and very cliched, but uh, if I cook for someone, it means I love them. If I cook for you, um, it means that, or if we share food, I don't even have to cook it. But if I, if we're sharing food together, it's because um, I want you to eat uh, delicious food. I want you to enjoy it. Uh, I want to wash it down with some great wine or beer or cider and uh, have a wonderful experience of being together. And if that means me rolling up my sleeves and getting a few burns and a few nicks and cuts along the way, I don't mind at all. I I love that save there, or when I'm eating food with others, because I don't think you've ever cooked for me. So, you know, good thinking on your feet. Very, that was really <laughs> quick. <laughs> so, right? I mean, we right. we've had some really great out with frequent Yeah, yeah, you know. And I'm not sure you want me to cook for you because, for for me, like buffalo chicken is the height of culinary culture. I love and buffalo most, chicken. If you cooked me yeah. buffalo wings, I would eat them thoroughly. Enjoy them. I would have barbecue sauce or chili sauce or whatever you put on them from ear to ear and on every finger and I would revel in it. Yeah. Yeah. I often joke with Ari that we should revel naked in buffalo sauce. And she's like, no, that seems like a really terrible idea, husband. <laughs> and she's, in fairness, I think she's right, but it's, it's a great joke to share. So I want to talk to you about the book. The book is called yeah. The Magic of Food. Rituals, Offerings, and Why We Eat Together. So it's a cookbook. It's sort of a history of food in cultures book. There's a lot going on with this particular book. You know, when you paid the 20 bucks, it's not like a manky book where you kind of feel cheated at the end. This is a really fucking good <laughs> book, and there's a lot of shit in it. So how, how did it come about? How, not, you writing about food isn't a surprise. But writing so broadly about food and looking at all of the different facets of food, how did you construct the book? How did it come together? What was your thought process while writing it and assembling it? 
Oh, that's a big question. Uh, let me see. It is. So, I, I'm just going to go have a drink for the next 40 minutes and just let you answer that question. <laughs> and you know I would do that, too. <laughs> um, I know you can. Yeah, me, I could, yeah. Um, right, well, let me see. I think really, I mean, if I boil it down, I think so. Um, I've been really fortunate in my pagan uh, life to hang out with druids and to hang out with witches and to hang out with heathens and, you know, pick a, pick a stripe and color and flavor of pagandom. And I've probably been to one of their rituals or gatherings or, or what have you. And in almost every occurrence, there's food, um, whether that's a feast, whether we're toasting big glasses of mead, whether that's making offerings of whiskey, whether it's uh, cakes and ale, there's, there's always some component of food. And, and that sort of fascinated me that, you know, it doesn't really matter what the religion or what the craft practice is. Uh, food is pretty ubiquitous, right? It's there everywhere. And then I started thinking about my favorite myths and the lore uh, every time you listen to somebody tell you a story of the, the lore of their, their craft or their tradition, there's always some story about food, right? There's a, a cauldron that's never uh, empty. There's a, a goat leg that keeps replenishing itself. There are apples that must be retrieved from the summer lands. There's all of these amazing stories, and nearly all of them have, some component of food or some mythological significance. Um, you know, even if you think about like uh, the realms of fairy, right? Um, you know, you don't want to eat the food the good people give you, otherwise, you might get trapped in the realms of fairy. So, right. every facet of the the you know the various uh, uh, religions or philosophies or thoughts or, or new traditions, whatever it is, we all sort of harken back to these myths. And in all of these myths, there's nearly always a food story. And I started thinking about it. Well, if I was going to make a meal for Inanna, the Sumerian goddess Inanna, what would I do? How would I entice Inanna to come to my ritual? Or if I was going to perform a ritual or have a meal be part of a ritual and the people coming to it um, were of a particular uh, tradition, what food could I serve that would honor them or their ancestors or their gods? And I just started, it kind of started from there. Um, And so with a little bit of research and some time and, you know, some culinary knowledge, uh, I started sort of tracing back and some of the first writing that we've got, in humankind is uh, the cuneiform tablets from, you know, depending on when they were written anywhere from sort of five to 7,000 years ago. Um, And the ancient Sumerians really wrote about three things. They wrote about commerce, you know, Jason owes Guion so many goats. Uh, They would record the stories of their gods and they would write down uh, recipes. They would write down menus. And I thought, well, if it was good enough for the ancient Sumerians practicing um, with Inanna and Ereshkigal and uh, Enki and all the other gods of that pantheon, it was good enough for me. And then I just kept following that thread. And um, 
so that's where sort of the history part of it came from. It just came out of this, my love of myth and story and um, realizing that whenever we gather for ritual, food is always there. And as far as we can tell, Jason, every culture at every point in history and hopefully for you know many thousands of years to come, whenever we gather, there's usually food or drink not far behind. Um, and if you think about it, like in our modern world, you know, if there's a, if there's a tragedy, um, you know, the neighbors show up with casseroles. If somebody gives birth, uh, people show up with uh, dinner for the, for the new family so they don't have to cook for a week. Um, if you look at all of the kind of top chefs that you see out there now, if you watch Food Network or any other shows, nearly every one of these uh, celebrity chefs are out there right now on the front lines, turning their restaurants into food kitchens or providing food for first responders or nurses or, you know, whomever it might be. There's this thing that happens when the shit hits the fan, somebody goes to the kitchen and starts making a casserole. And uh, to me, that tells me that must be potent magic. If the first thing we think of in a disaster is how am I going to feed myself and how am I going to feed somebody else? That tells me there's deep, deep, potent magic there. And I love doing that kind of magic. So, you know, I write a lot about ritual. And we're going to talk about your next book after this one, because it's also about ritual. But I have always really loved cakes and ale or cakes and wine during witch ritual for precisely the reasons that you're talking about. I mean, it's, you know, I think in the Church of All Worlds, they say water shared is life shared. And in my house, we think that's a fine sentiment, but we're more likely to say wine shared is life shared because that's <laughs> how we roll. Do you think we kind of overlook as pagans sometimes the bonding power that comes from eating and drinking together? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, you know, many years ago, I was um, uh, in a in a house in San Francisco with some people that had been practicing the craft since the, oh, probably late 60s and, and into the mid-70s, founders of a, of a tradition or two. And um, we were constructing this class. And in that class, we were going to do a ritual. And I said, okay, so after we're done teaching, um, how about we uh, we eat? Like that was kind of the, the format. That was the schema. You do the work. Uh, and then afterwards we'd eat together, but it was always kind of um, brief. And one of uh, these wise, wise mentors, an amazing woman by the name of Rose May Dance, said, "No, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna eat in sacred space." And I said, "Oh, okay. Why is that?" Uh, rather than sort of finishing the teaching, and she said, "Because there's something magic that happens when we've all, you know, thrown the food on the on the table or put it on the the blanket that we're sitting around." And we start, you know, picking at grapes or cheese or whatever it is that there is to eat. And then we continue this magical discussion. There's this ease that kind of comes over everybody. It's not, I'm the teacher, you're the student, I'm the high priest, you're the, the, uh, the, the dedicant. You know, all of that sort of goes away. And it became re- people reaching in saying, would you hand me another slice of bread or could you hand me that bit of beef or, you know, whatever it was that was available. And it, it made, it was very, um, 
uh, democratic, if you get what I mean. Like everybody sat around, everybody shared, everybody had an idea about the magical work that we were doing. And it sort of got thrown into, to use a food metaphor, it sort of got thrown into this soup or this cauldron that we were creating. And it made the magic of the ritual that we did later that night so much stronger. Um, so, you know, whether it's beforehand, during or afterwards, yeah, I think when we sit and eat together, I, I think we are sharing the building blocks of life and any magic we do that sustains life, I think is powerful and profound and potent. So, yeah, I think, um, I'd love to eat and drink more with the people that I do magic with. You know, again, Jason, you and I have, I've been in many rituals together and, and you know that sometimes we meet up beforehand and we have a little bite to eat or a drink or um, we've set up. I'm, I'm reminded of a time when I was in Washington State at this amazing um, pagan abbey. And uh, the ritual was done at, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And we sat up until 3 o'clock in the morning eating and drinking wine and whiskey and apple pie whiskey and moonshine and you know the gods know what else we drank that night but the event was amazing the rituals were fabulous but that four five six hours of sitting around afterwards drinking and eating and telling stories that was i mean that was pure magic yeah uh, that particular weekend i remember really well the only downside is after one of those nights, because I think both Friday and Saturday night, we we spent a lot of time hanging out and drinking and just being with people, which really is something we're like really taking for granted. And I miss so much right now. But John Beckett had me get up at eight in the morning to shoot a video for his blog. And I remember going to bed that night at about two and thinking, there's just no way John's going to get up at 8. I'm going to be saved from this. And, of course, 7.55, John, hey, you need to get up. You promised me you'd do this. But we do those things for the people we love. That was a, yeah, that was the Beyond the Gates Festival at Trout Lake Abbey. I do not mind giving shout-outs to things that I love, right? And yeah. you've been there three times, and I've been there twice. Yeah, we love that yeah. spot. It's such a great spot. Uh, it is. So so your book has some recipes for alcoholic beverages in it. What do you yes. how do you feel about uh drinking in the circle? I'm not saying like people get sloppy drunk, but every once in a while you've, I've had people like, huh, you had a cider before ritual? How dare you? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I um, I think so. You know, the the very first caveat that I will say about this is I absolutely drink al alcohol. I like it. I have done that same trip that I went on when I was seven years old, and I discovered paella. Um, I also discovered rum and coke, and that has also been a lifelong passion of mine. I love rum. Um, so you know, just to be clear, um, I do enjoy drinking. Uh, mostly I drink responsibly. There have been times in my life where that has been untrue, but generally I, I'm responsible when I drink. So um, I understand, you know, there are folks that allergies or shouldn't drink because of their own personal relationships to, to alcohol. So, you know, I always mitigate this answer a little bit by your mileage may vary. 
Uh, if you're somebody that, that, you know, enjoys a drink and you can do it in a magical space, uh, then more power to you. But for, for me personally, um, you know, I think there is different magic in different alcohol. Uh, I can definitely go into uh, a magical space and not have alcohol, not drink wine. It could be grape juice. You know, it could be water, whatever it is. And the magic can absolutely still be potent. I mean, there are there's a tradition that I spent many years in, as you know, the reclaiming tradition. And the reclaiming tradition um, does not encourage, in fact, specifically says no drugs or alcohol during ritual and, and preferably beforehand and also in their classes. Now, that's not because everybody in reclaiming um, is in recovery or anybody is against the use of alcohol. It's just that reclaiming made a decision 40 years ago that it was going to be an inclusive tradition or as inclusive as possible. And because of that, it didn't want folks that, um, that were in recovery to feel like they couldn't come to a ritual. So many of the people in reclaiming have, you know, wonderful relationships with, um, with, with drugs and alcohol, herbs and plants and vines and things like that. Um, they just choose not to do it in a magical space. And I get that. Some of the most potent experiences I've ever had in magical spaces have been in spaces where, where drugs and alcohol weren't encouraged. And having said that, if I'm doing a ritual to say Dionysus, I want to pour wine. I want to drink wine. I want to drink copious quantities of wine. I want everybody in the circle that wants to enjoy that, that can and should imbibe wine to do all of that. I think that's something that Dionysus recognizes. I think he's like, oh, look, people enjoying wine and lounging about and uh, singing and solving the problems of the world and reciting poetry at 3 a.m. This seems like the kind of place I'd like to hang out. So um, I think it can add. The one thing I always say about it, though, is consent, right? If everybody in the circle is, is up for it, brilliant. As long as no one's pressured to drink, you know, you must drink this wine. Otherwise, you can't be a real witch, heathen, magic worker, you know, Ugh. whatever it is. Right? But as long as it's yeah. uh, readily available and, yeah, uh, again, um, I, I really enjoy alcohol, and I think there's absolutely a place for it in magic, without a doubt. I mean, how could you work with uh, Papa Legua, for instance, and not leave rum? It would be impertinent right. to work with uh, Odin and not have a little bit of mead, right? So, uh, for sure. Leave some wine for Pan. That's pretty important. That's like God of the wineskin, though he doesn't make it like Dionysus. There was a time when, I think it was about 10 years ago, I did a ritual at Convocation in Detroit, and we had, uh, it was for Dionysus and Aphrodite, and it was supposed to be like a traditional Greek-style ritual, but too many people came up to me and were like, yeah, Dionysus, Mankey, woo! And I was like, well, I can't do that then. I mean, I have to do something else, right? I mean, I have to make it more fun than a traditional Greek ritual, and so, you know, there was a little thing where we, like, did little shots of wine for Dionysus at the end. And I read a review of that ritual, and it was mostly positive. But then somebody was like, and Mankey, who was well-known for mixing alcohol into his rituals, and I felt really terrible about that because my mother's an alco a recovering or still is an alcoholic. I haven't spoken to her in 30 years, 
because of her alcohol problems, I'm really sensitive about those things. And I think long and hard about it. You know, the idea that you would have to drink wine in order to praise Dionysus or whatever. I mean, I know in our regular circles, Ari and I might have a glass of wine before ritual, but we don't want people bringing it into ritual. It's like a fine line, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know the way I look at it is if if the the wine or the whiskey or the mead or the honey wine or you know whatever it is that is is being in if there's a if there's a ritual purpose for it, if there's a magical intention with it, then absolutely bring it into ritual. If it's just because you want to get sloshed, and eh, probably not the best um the best use of it, right? Right. Yeah, that that bothers me. That's not the point, right? That's something else right. entirely. So you brought up being a part of reclaiming, and you have been in several different pagan and spiritual traditions in addition to reclaiming. You're also a Gardnerian witch, and before that, you were in the Avalon Druid Order. Mm. So yeah. I'm cur- I'm, and you're initiated into all three things. That's Pretty All three things. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, I've only found one group that would ever initiate me. So <laughs> I want uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of those experiences. The druid thing was before the witch thing for you, right? Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So what was that like? What made what made that experience different than reclaiming or Gardnerian Wicca? <laughs> Uh, so the, the ADO, the Avalon Druid Order, was a small offshoot of uh, a much larger uh, um, Druidic tradition. And um, what I found really compelling about that group was their attention to Welsh mythology, which, you know, I love Welsh mythology uh, and Welsh magical stories and the initiation cycles that are kind of built into um, uh, into the four branches of what is commonly known as the Mabinogian. Uh, the Mabinogis are, are really a better name for it. But um, uh, so I, what I really loved was they had this um, uh, uh, sort of the, the entree into their tradition was the myths of Avalon. So Arthurian legend, things like that. And then really a deep dive into these Welsh tales, which really, um, you know, depending on which scholar you, you believe either informed things like the Arthurian legend or were co-created or drew on some of the same myths. Now there's lots of different schools of thought of exactly how that happened. But I really loved that. Uh, I loved getting into those stories. Um, and they were very sort of academic um, in their approach to it. There was a lot of um, personal journeying um, in meditation and, and trance work. Um, and then a lot of uh, heavy book learning. And I ate that up. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, and I was part of that tradition for about uh, three years. Um, and, um, again, it was something that really spoke to my heart because of where I grew up. So while I grew up in London, I spent a lot of time in Kent. I spent a lot of time, um, in, in Somerset, which is where Bath and, um, um, Stonehenge, well, that's Wiltshire, but that general part of the world, Glastonbury, 
all of that is is in that sort of Somerset Wiltshire area area. And I spent a lot of time there. And so sort of going back over the ground of these these stories, Jason, was like going home in both a magical sense, like it fit my spiritual leanings, but it was also physically like going home, going back to England. Um, where I grew up, there was a, a wood, uh, a woods called Abbey Wood, and it was called Abbey Wood because there was an old, you know, 12th century monastery that was sacked in the 15th century, um, uh, or 16th century, excuse me. And um, so there was this ruined abbey, and it was near where my mum worked. So I would go wandering around in the woods in this ruined abbey. Um, it's not hard to believe in, in magic in a place like that. You know, there were these 500-year-old oak trees, and um, I could imagine Roman soldiers coming through there, or knights, or witches, and wizards. And, you know, I was pretty easy with a, a, a young kid with a vibrant imagination to get lost in this wonderful world. And, you know, I was an avid reader, so I'd read things like The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe, and then I'd go wandering off into the woods, and there I am, you know, in this thousand-year-old, 800-year-old ruined cathedral. So, um, yeah, you know, growing up in England, I was always sort of exposed to magic. Um, as a kid, I've, I've told this story before, but as a kid, I used to go to the a Church of England school, uh, St. Mary Magdalene, funnily enough. And um, Wow. Yeah, right. And my yes, mom sent awesome. me to that school. Yeah, yeah. My mum was not religious, is not religious at all, thinks it's about a load of cods, wallop, and bollocks is her typical phrase for religion. Um, but she wanted me to go to that school because she thought it was a better school than the comprehensive school that was up the road. Uh, she didn't like that one. So she sent me to St. Mary Magdalene. So I got a religious education um, somewhat. But I would also, we, part of it was we were required to go to church. And some of my favorite, um, some of my favorite memories are of, of May Day, Beltane, in the churchyard, you know, swanning around a, a, a maypole, a, you know, 12 foot tall bedecked with flowers and ribbons maypole and going to Harvest Festival. And Harvest Festival was... Uh, Alamus, right? It was the end of August, early September, and we'd go in and there'd be wheat sheaves all over the church, and then we'd have cups of tea and digestive biscuits down in the crypt, you know. So that was sort of where I grew up, and so the Avalon Druid Order sort of reminded me of all of that. It took me back to those places, um, which I think was a, a, an integral part of my, um, my journey as a, as a witch and a pagan. Yeah, you know, you know, it's interesting to me because we've known each other for like what seven or eight years, maybe now, uh, and yeah. we've known each other pretty well, really, for like four or five. You know, I think yeah. there was like we were kind of circled around each other, then our friendship blossomed. And you know, it's hard for me to think of you as a druid sometimes, and being in a druid thing because you're just such a natural witch, right? <laughs> I mean, I look at Gwen yeah. and I'm like that's. That's my witch motherfucker right there, you know. And it's just a part of you. See, I'm free of payments tonight now. I don't have to worry about my language anymore. This is really great. This is a whole adventure. That's why you had to have a whole yeah. game. But 
So you were you've been in reclaiming for over a decade, maybe longer yeah. than that, right? Yeah. Yeah, two thousand and three. Tell me about yeah. Yeah. Wow. Like, how did you get involved? And you know, for the last so many years, you're more than just someone who goes to reclaiming. You know, you work at which camps? You cook at which camps? You teach at which camps? You know, it's a it's a big part of your experience as a witch. Yeah, it has been for sure. Uh, I mean, the simple answer there's um, it's uh, I wish there was some you know big spiritual awakening that happened with reclaiming. And throughout my time of reclaiming, that's certainly true. But the real answer of how I came to reclaiming was um, my girlfriend at the time, Phoenix, who's now my wife. Um, uh, we had been together for a little bit. We'd been together for several months. And uh, uh, I had said to her, can we do magic together? And she said, oh, no, no, definitely not. And I said, why not? And she said, magic is way too intimate. And at that point in our relationship, we had been intimate in other ways. And I said, what do you mean it's too intimate? You know, like we, we've been intimate. And she's like, yeah, that's different. So she said, magic, you know, it's a different level of intimacy. So funnily enough, she gave me this book, which I still have on my shelf today. And she got it in probably 1997 when she was, I don't know, 15 or something like that. Um, she uh, she gave me Ray Buckland's big blue book of witchcraft and said, start with this. And so I read through that book. And then after a while, she said, okay, now let's go to a ritual. And that first ritual that we went to happened to be um, a reclaiming ritual. She'd been going to reclaiming rituals since she was 15. So at that point, about 10 years. And so she took me to um, uh, she took me to a, a, a Samhain ritual, and it blew my fucking mind. Like she, I came out of that ritual, and she said, "Well, what do you think?" And I said, "I have <laughs> no idea what happened, but I want more." And I remember there was one priestess who now I know she's a dear friend of mine. I remember she came out with these huge ram horns on and um, another one of the priestesses who happens to be one of my initiators. She's got long black hair that sort of came down to her knees and she was bare breasted and cavorting with the gods during this ritual I didn't know what to do with myself and it was ecstatic and there was drumming and thrumming and it was, it was like 150 people there and it blew my mind and then uh, for several years afterwards Phoenix and I would go at the time uh, Reclaiming did about four or five public rituals a year and we started going to them and then eventually took some classes and then eventually became planners of those rituals and teachers within that tradition and initiates within that tradition. And yeah, I've been super fortunate. I've taught in uh, Texas and uh, in um, Austin, Texas and Baltimore and Philadelphia and uh, Northern California, even North, you know, from where I live. Um, I've taught in Canada. Um, I, it's been really wonderful I, I thoroughly enjoy oh back in in um, 
uh, in, in a camp called Winter Camp, which uh, happened in Wisconsin, and another camp called oh. Spiral Heart, which happens uh, near Virginia. So, yeah, it's been really fabulous. Um, it has been a big part of my life for many years. I've heard people talk about Winter Camp before, and as someone who lived in Michigan for a long time, it just sounds horrifying to me. <laughs> like, I do not want to be outside in the Midwest from January until maybe like the 1st of April. Sometimes at Ostara, it's almost nice. You know, I can't imagine living in the Bay Area and going to Wisconsin for winter camp. You know, there's a reason yeah, the Circle we... Sanctuary doesn't have outdoor rituals during the winter, right? <laughs> yeah. It was pretty amazing. We were on a on a frozen lake on an island in the middle of a frozen lake. It was like an old YMCA camp or a Boy Scout camp or something like that. And they do it at a different location now, which is apparently equally as bleak. But uh, um, it um, it was pretty amazing. Um, it was a different way for me to look at magic because I'm so used to, as you mentioned, living in California. You know, I'm surrounded by vineyards and redwoods and green for much of the year, brown for a portion of the year. And so going to this camp where it took me a while to see where the life was, I just saw this, you know, frozen tundra and thought, what the fuck am I doing here? Um, And it took me a while to get into the rhythm, you know, the slowness of a cold, snowy winter is really different. The the energy of the land is different. The energy of the people is different. The style of food that they eat was really different than what I might eat in California because of the cold. So it was really like, you know, stick to your ribs, hearty, rich foods, because you need that kind of sustenance. Otherwise, you'll freeze to death, you know? So, um, yeah, I I loved going to winter camp. One day I'd love to return to it. Yeah, you are you are better than me. I mean, I can go to Convocation in Detroit, where I basically can just stay in the hotel the entire time, where it's warm, and you know, just ride the shit out of that heater in that room. You know, it's yeah. just eighty-five. <laughs> so, so my my like now soft butt doesn't die because living in California go. has made has made me soft. <laughs> and then, so we've talked about two of the traditions. Now you're an initiated gardenarian. What do you, how do you feel about initiatory traditions? Is it like a pretentiousness or is it a different energy that you get out of being something and in being involved in something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I never ever imagined that I would be gardenarian. You know, it seemed to me very, sort of by the book and I thought it was 70 years out of date. I mean, I appreciated Gardnerian Wicca. I appreciated what it's done for magic. Um, You know, most, not all, but most of the traditions in the United States, at least, owe some nod of appreciation to Gardnerian Wicca. And in many cases, they are offshoots or distant cousins of, again, that's not true for, for every tradition, but for many, many, many of them, um, the, they owe you know at least a, a nod of appreciation, I think, to uh, to Gardneri and Wicca. But I never imagined that I would want to be in a in a small coven uh, that you know kind of did 
things by the book sort of the same way, especially when I compare that to reclaiming where it's very ecstatic, it's improvisational, it's kind of organic. Um, and, and so I thought, wow, that, I, that's just not for me. And then I started practicing. And I was initiated into a coven, and uh, it has been spectacular. And part of it is because of the folks in the coven, and part of it has been there is... Um, uh, there's a groove, right? An egregore. There is this, um, there is this wonderful freedom of saying the same thing over and over again, of doing the same parts of ritual, essentially the same way that I never really understood. It's like when you think about uh, Tibetan monks chanting the same thing over and over and over and over again for hours or days at a time there's this freedom that happens when your mind stops paying attention to the words or to the chanting or the movements that you're doing. That's, that gives your body something to do while your mind or your spirit or your soul or whatever you want to call connects with something else. And that's the thing that I love about the Gardnerian coven that I'm part of is we laugh and we joke and, and we have a good time, but when we get into that ritual room, like the the temperature in that room goes up, like yeah, there is. Uh, I had a friend tell me once that if you do the same ritual over and over again, it becomes rather trance-like. And I always really appreciated that because for so long in my experience, I was someone who would write a new quarter call every ritual. You know, we're going to do a full moon ritual. I'm going to rewrite every bit of the ritual. And it's really kind of jarring when you do that because you have to think about what you're going to say the whole time and you don't get that sort of like – I'm going into a mantra sort of thing. You can't lose yourself in the words. It's very, very different. So I think we've lost Gwen for a second on the show, which oh, is no, kind of I'm rough. So hit. Sorry about that. There, there you, you go. go. No, all right. I was a little nervous there. But, yeah, I think it's like hypnotic, right, when you hear the same thing yeah. over and over. And I didn't know that until, like, eight years ago. And kind of just fell into that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that, you know, and that's the thing. And in, and in, in the case of my coven, you know, we're a relatively small coven. Um, and we, um, you know, so there's a, there's a magic that is developing between us, which is very sweet. It's very different doing ritual with the same, you know, six or eight people as opposed to 60 or 80 people. It's not that both aren't potent. It's not that both can't be profound and life-changing and, and energy-raising and all those things. And there are some advantages of doing magic with 60 or 80 people. And there is something just, you know, wonderfully intimate about doing ritual with, with a small group of, of people. I adore it. I really do. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Gardner, when he was first writing about witchcraft, as most of us practice it today, when I say that, I mean, like, you know, you call something akin to the four quarters and cast a circle or something like that. 
you know, he thought the maximum size of the coven was 13 people. I mean, he was really fixated right. on gender balance and male-female pairs, and most of us just think that's bollocks at this point, and it is bollocks. If you believe it's not bollocks, there's probably other shows that you can go listen to. But, uh, you know, he was like, you know, six couples and a high priestess and 13 people, that's all you need. And I've always felt like the smaller, more intimate things, I, I just feel like I can be myself. I feel like I get more work done. I'd like some of the big things. Don't get me wrong. I've done some really fabulous Taoan rituals with 100 people and other things, with a, you know, a couple hundred people. But it's a really different sort of energy. It's certainly not perfect, it is. perfect trust. Yeah. Right? Yeah, there's you've got to cast a wider net. You know, I've, I've been super fortunate for six years. I was one of uh, a, a great number of people that produced the spiral dance, which for anybody who knows that the spiral dance has been happening in San Francisco for roughly, or the San Francisco Bay area actually happens in Richmond now, but it's been happening for about 40 years now. Um, and, uh, in its in its height, I think there were you know two thousand people at that ritual. Generally, there's about a thousand to twelve hundred people. So imagine if you've ever been to an event like PantheaCon. Imagine if every participant at PantheaCon came to one ritual and did a spiral dance. That's a lot of energy and it's a lot of power. And to watch fifteen hundred people uh, intertwining through this. Um, double spiral that gets created. Uh, it is it is mesmerizing. You're singing a song, you know, hundreds of times through. It's a beautiful, almost Sufi-esque kind of ritual um, because of this repetition and this singing and seeing, you know, uh, 3,500 eyes, you know, staring back at you. It's it's incredible. It's like doing a ritual with a giant disco ball. You know, you just see yourself reflected in all those tiles. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've done really amazing and phenomenal ritual with, you know, a couple thousand of my closest friends. Um, and, uh, and while it is wonderful and profound and, and mind-blowing, so is a ritual I've done with four people. Um, you know, so I think there's, it, again, it's all about the intention of the magic. I'm going to guess but, that you've probably done really great rituals with just one other person since I know who you're married to, right? Because, yeah. I mean, I do great rituals with Ari, right? So I assume that you can do really great things with Phoenix. And if yeah, you're not doing you know, great things with Phoenix, I would worry about you. Yeah, me too. You know, I have to tell you, <laughs> she is uh, – and, and I, I, I'm really trying to, like, separate out you know, the husband for a moment, I love uh, being in ritual with Phoenix. Um, I love doing magic with Phoenix and, you know, Phoenix teaches a lot, both in her own sort of brand of magic, if you will, um, and in reclaiming. And I nearly always take her classes, not because I feel I'm, you know, duty bound to support my wife because she fills classes every time. Anytime she speaks, there's a full room. She has people laughing and joking. She's got, you know, amazing things to say. 
Um, sometimes people look at her and think, oh, you're so young and what could you possibly know? And then she starts talking and they don't realize that she's been practicing witchcraft for 25 years now. And, you know, she's just turned 42. So she's been doing this a really, really long time. I fucking love being in ritual with her. I love it when she wants to make magic. I love it when I get to make magic. She's so wise and um, she's, she's like quietly powerful and you can see it. You can feel it. Um, I know you've gone through this before, Jason. There's a thing that comes over Phoenix, whether it's the gods or, you know, whatever she's channeling in the moment or just that inner Phoenix. I don't know how to describe it, but sometimes I look at her and I think, who is that person? Like, that's not my wife. Um, it's a completely different <laughs> yeah. person. And um, that scares me and, um, and uh, thrills me at the same time. Yeah, it's awesome and frightening because I do the same thing yeah. with Ari. So, so speaking of Phoenix LeFay, who is Gwen's wife, who has this great book out called What is Remembered Lives, and my hope is to have her on the show fairly soon. I only got the show out of Mothballs two days ago, so you have to give me a, a few weeks to figure out who I'm going to have on. But the two of you wrote a book together recently. Yeah. And my guess is that it's probably going to be out in early 2021, maybe late 2020. Yeah, that's correct. That's right. Yeah, yeah. we've written a book called uh, uh, A Life Ritualized, which uh, it's, um, I think the subtitle of it is a, a, a Witch's Guide to Rituals and the Moments of Everyday Life or something like that. But it's really a book about um, modern rites of passage, the kinds of rituals and rites that we all go through. Um, and sometimes there isn't, um, there isn't a space for that, right? You know, we like right now we're all going through massive collective grief, I think because of COVID and some of the things we've had to sacrifice or give up or people that we've lost. And, you know, uh, many people I know, we look at social media, many people, um, you know, they lose a, a beloved pet. And I know I have, I know you have, Jason. And sometimes there isn't a ritual for that. And I think that's a rite of passage. Um, you know, I have my my dear dog, Josie, was with me for 14 years. Our, be- our cat, Bear Claw, was with us for 17 years. And when they left us, there was a hole in our life. That was a rite of passage. It was like a, a dear friend left. They were gone. Um, and, and so Phoenix and I started thinking about how, how can we ritualize this? How can we honor this rite of passage from, you know, being, um, uh, from being single to being married to being in a couple or a throuple or, you know, whatever combination of people there are to not being in that, how do we celebrate or ritualize or mark divorces and, and partner breakups? whatever the nature of that relation looks like. Um, how do we celebrate coming out? I, mean, I know when I came out, there was absolutely zero. Um, uh, nothing was written about how you come out, you know, like yeah, there was nothing there. Um, so, you know, things like that, the, the things that happen to everyday people, everyday m- m- magicians and magic workers and witches and pagans and how can we make those moments sacred and, and meaningful? How do we mark them? How do we recognize this? So that's a lot of other books. Uh, 
I am all for, you know, whatever sort of magic or practice works for people. But, you know, sometimes I feel like in the age of the Instagram witch, where it's basically about spells, maybe sharing this really beautiful picture of your altar while you're working your spell, that we're losing touch with ritual. And to me, being a witch, a lot of it is about the ritual of being a witch, making sacred space, being between the worlds, being in a time that is not a time and a place that is not a place. Uh, to quote, I think, DJ Conway, who wrote that in one of her books. Do you feel like we sometimes overlook ritual in this time? Well, here's how I'm going to phrase that. I'm going to flip the script a little bit. I don't think we overlook ritual per se. I think we're engaged in ritual all the time. I don't think we recognize ritual. Um, And I think that's the difference. So if I was creating an altar for a particular piece of spell work that I was going to do, and I'm picking out, you know, a a particular color uh, altar cloth and maybe just the right tarot cards or the, the... right pine cone and candle you know whatever it is that i'm going to put on the altar um there's a ritual to that you know going to the cabinet where you keep your fabric um deciding when to start the magic uh do you dust the room where you keep the altar do you take that milk crate that is your magical altar and take off the old altar before you start the new one you know for whatever piece of magic you're doing that, I think, is all part of the ritual of magic. And I think the moment we start thinking, oh, you know what? I'm going to do a piece of magic. And how am I going to go about doing that? That's the moment ritual begins. And I think that's the bit that people don't recognize. So I think it's fantastic, you know, of the, um, the Instagram vision of witchcraft. I love that. I think that's absolutely fabulous because I don't much care how people get into witchcraft. Again, as long as it's consent based, I don't care how people get into witchcraft and, and what their practice is because, you know, let's face it, you know, the way I got into witchcraft is going to be different than the way you did. And people get different things at different times when they need them. And so, you know, who am I to judge uh, you know, an Instagram witch, so to speak. I don't know, yeah, magic is just as real as anybody else's magic. And over years, maybe they'll develop skills. That, that would be fabulous. And I do think this notion of not recognizing and engaging in ritual and recognizing for what it is, and then recognizing that we all go through different rites of passage and not recognizing what those are, I think they leave gaps in our body and in our spiritual practice because we can't put a name to it or celebrate the fact that we can't put a name to it and leave that space open and say, eh, okay, there's a place at the table for that space and maybe it will get filled later and maybe it won't. So, yeah, I sort of mostly agree with what you're saying there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just throwing out the hypothetical. I'm with you. I'm, I'm down with whatever gets somebody through the door. There is no minimum requirement to be a witch. There's no maximum requirement to be a witch. You do it how you feel it works, right? And I hate hearing people criticize the Instagram witches or whatever else. I mean, witchcraft has always been this thing that is it, it progresses, it changes, it adapts, it 
this is the problem with having a show called, you know, which is whiskey and wit. Eventually the whiskey takes over and the wit falls apart. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're not, because you know, yeah, that's a part of it. But you know, that's I think right. That's kind of what makes it fun. So speaking of fun, we're gonna go in the exact opposite way. I don't like to do like much more than an hour on these shows because there's a thousand podcasts to listen to, and I don't want to ever bore people. But as we record this for people who are gonna listen to it months or years later or whatever, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 shelter-at-home, shelter-in-place order, but, you know, and I think in California now we're looking at two months. We've been, we've been doing this for two months. We're getting ready to start month three. How has your practice changed in these two months? Are you missing things? Are you finding substitutes for the things you're missing? You know, how do you feel about practicing witchcraft in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, that is, you know, it's a brilliant question, right? So in the, in the short term, uh, the short answer would be my practice hasn't changed fundamentally because, you know, I do so much kitchen witchery anyway um, that actually being home, not having the luxury of going out to, to restaurants and bars and taco trucks and things like that, like I would normally do, it sort of reinvigorated my uh, passion for cooking in the moment. I think what I would say about my practice is it's gone deep, not wide. So I'm really paying attention to my garden and to the herbs and flowers and plants that are making their way through uh, into the sunlight right now, you know? Um, and, you know, Phoenix and I have absolutely planted more vegetables this year than we might normally have. We've also, um, you know, we have a, 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 a fairly secure amount of money at the moment. So um, we have indulged ourselves, re- really practically speaking, um, we have a CSA, which is a, a food delivery service of local organic um, uh, uh, vegetables primarily. There'll be some fruits later on in the year. So that's a box that we get weekly. So it's seasonal. So as a cook, I look at that box and go, great, what am I going to do with what's in season right now? And I've got a week to eat it before the next box shows up. But we've also increased that. We now have a dairy. And um, uh, so we get cheese and eggs and milk from local farmers. And we have a meat CSA as well, where we get really phenomenal uh, meats, uh, you know, lamb and pig and, and beef and, and various poultries and game foods like rabbits and, and whatnot. Filter and organs we get that. and whatnot. Filter organs and whatnot. Yeah, off cuts <laughs> of meat that most people wouldn't eat. We're getting those. So they're from farms right here in Sonoma County, where I live. It's bands of farmers getting together and saying, okay, I've got these many cows or goats or chickens or whatever. And then there's a local butcher shop um, that that takes care of everything, um, you know, uh, uh, from the moment of death to the moment it it ends up on my plate. And um, so in that regard, Jason, I actually, I'm not thankful for COVID. I'm not looking for a silver lining here, but being at home has forced me to examine my magical practice and my consumer practice 
and look at where my beliefs match up and where they don't. So I've been ordering a lot of things from local companies, local farmers. I just put some stuff down in my back garden, um, some mulch, and I got it from a local company instead of ordering it from, say, Home Depot, right? So I'm, it, my practice has gotten local and it's gotten slow. And I love that about it. Now, what do I miss? I miss my coven. I haven't been able to meet with my coven um, in, you know, like you said, you know, we're in month three now. Um, so I've been able to meet with my coven in months. I haven't been able to get into that ritual room and do that magic or share a bottle of wine with dear friends. Um, part of my magic is presenting, talking about my book, being on podcasts, going to conferences, meeting different people, cooking in other people's houses cooking for groups of people um you know in october i was at an amazing event where i got to cook for eight days for about 80 people breakfast lunch dinner and dessert with four other cooks in the kitchen it was grueling work from 5:45 in the morning until about eight at night and i loved it and i can't do that right now um that's hard not being able to cook for friends and family um, and sit around a fire pit and, you know, enjoy um, food and, and drink. That's what I miss. Um, so, yeah, my magic has gotten slower and uh, deeper, and I'm more appreciative of, the, of every single piece of food, herb, spice, meat that is in my house because I can't take it for granted anymore. I, I love the way that you phrase this slower, deeper. That sounds about right. I know that in my own practice with Ari, we're noticing things that we don't normally notice because we have that extra time to, you know, smell the rose around the corner and whatever else. We're more in tune with things locally on a smaller level because we don't get to travel like we normally would, you know, if, already had pagan festivals I was supposed to be at. It canceled this year. You know, it's it's a really different space. So before I let you go, I know that doing these kind of shows is also about promoting your things. So if people want to know more about you or want to buy your books, where is the best place to do those things? Uh, you know, I'm a, an equal opportunity recommender. So you can you can absolutely come to my website. You can go to guionraven.com, and you can purchase books uh, directly from uh, me there. Send me a, a message and say, I want the magic of food, and we'll figure out the best way to get it out to you. And if you want me to scribble my name on the inside of it, I'll happily do that. Um, so you can also go to Milk and Honey. Um, that's a shop that I own, a co-own with the amazing Phoenix, and that's in Sebastopol, California. So if you type in Milk and Honey Sebastopol, you will find our shop and you can purchase from there. We'd appreciate the support right now because the shop is closed to walk in traffic. Uh, you can find me on Facebook under the Magic of Food, and that's Magic with a K. Um, you can find me on Instagram under the Magic of Food, again with a K. And then you can find me on Facebook at Guion Raven. And then I write a co- co-write a blog with Phoenix. Sometimes I write it, sometimes she writes it, sometimes we write it together. Uh, and that's called The Witch's 
next door. And uh, I love writing there. We just put up a couple of articles this week. Uh, one of them, funnily enough, was food-related. It was about different ways you can use salt in your magical practice. People love salt, so that's an important one to write about. Indeed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Speaking of salt, my guest next week will be Estrella Taylor, whose blog post, the magic of salt bowls is the most read post in the history of Pathios Pagan. So there's something about salt. Uh, thank you, Gwen. I love talking to you. I love you. I love, I love your wife. I miss you terribly. I can't wait until we get to have a pint of cider again when this is all over or mm-hmm. whatever you want to drink. At this point, I'm putting vodka into my mouth just to be with you. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't <laughs> matter. Uh, All right, um, I'm gonna, thank I'm you gonna for blend the... up some organ meats and some onions for you. We'll do a nice oh, onion smoothie. <laughs> uh, that's that's not gonna go well. That's not gonna go well. <laughs> you can talk to Ari. When, oh, we won't we won't we won't say what I'm thinking there. But uh, I love you and thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you all who have listened and. Uh, today, when I announced that I was going to be doing this again, everybody was very excited, which is very flattering and very sweet. I've got a lot of great guests lined up over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to be doing this every week, at least during quarantine. And then when that trails off, I'll probably have other things to do, but we'll be active for quite a while. I'm hoping to have Phoenix on soon. I'm hoping she'll be my third guest. I have to send her a message. As I said, next week, Estrella Taylor, who wrote Intuitive Witchcraft, which was just released. It's a really great book. She's going to be my guest. And Laura tempest Zakharoff will be joining me next month. And I've got lots and lots of great people who are going to be here with us. So thank you, Gwen. Thank you for listening. I'm Jason Mankey. This is Witches, Whiskey, and Wit. We hope that you have found all three in abundance this evening. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you next time. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.